Well, good evening and welcome everyone to our final lesson on the Ten Commandments. It's been a joy to work through these and learn so much myself. I hope it's been a beneficial thing for you and for your family. And we want to remind you that all of these recordings are now in perpetuity, I suppose. They're there forever, uh, as long as this world lasts on the Internet. Facebook and YouTube uh, both have these lessons going back. So if you missed one, go back and check it out. Refer them to friends. We want to encourage everyone to get to know the Word of God, the will of God for their life and for His good and perfect will for the world. We've been talking about how in times like we're going through right now, where our culture just seems to be unraveling on so many different levels, that there's no greater need than for us to go back and look at the fundamentals and see what rules God has provided us to live by so that we can live together in harmony, so that we can learn to respect and care for and love one another appropriately. And the Ten Commandments provide the absolute foundation that every society needs in order to function together as a society, as a community, as a culture. And so you need these in your family. You need them in your workplace. We need them in our setting as a congregation. And we certainly need them in the community here in Bowling Green and wherever you live. And we need them in our nation as well. Without them, everything begins to unwind and collapse. And so tonight we're going to look at the 10th of these commandments, but we're not going to start in Exodus 20 where that commandment's found. Instead, I want to go ahead to the New Testament and look at an event that occurred in the life of our Lord Jesus himself in which he found himself teaching on one occasion. And someone came up and had a personal difficulty that they thought Jesus could help resolve in their favor. And so they shouted out, I suppose, from the crowd, a question or a request for Jesus. And here's how it goes. It says in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, that someone, we don't know who, but someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So Jesus is up there teaching what he's teaching and someone shouts this out from the crowd. I need your help. I need you to become an an arbitrator, uh, arbiter between me and my brother because our father, our mother has passed away. And maybe this other person's uh, disputing the inheritance rights that I have. And I want you to, uh, to sort this out for us. Well, Jesus had no intentions of becoming the executor of this family's will. Certainly wasn't his purpose in coming. And he says as much in his response. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me to to be a judge or an arbiter between the two of you, you and your brother? Then he said to them, so I guess they were both there. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed For life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Jesus gave this man asking him this question, something far more valuable than a larger share of the inheritance left to him by their parents. Jesus gave him a word of counsel, an expression of truth, that if this person received it well and applied it in their life, made them far richer than all the inheritance that they could have received from their deceased parents. It was the uh, warning that there's a, a way of thinking that human beings fall prey to that 
what life consists of is how much stuff we can gather and accumulate and acquire for ourselves. And that life's just sort of a game. It's a racket about who can acquire the most possessions and whoever dies with the most toys wins, as the saying goes. And Jesus says, it's not true. It's not really the way that it works. And that a life, a life is far more than the list of acquisitions that we gain in life. In fact, you can have all the goods that this world has to offer and still not have much of a life. If you don't have quality relationships, if you don't have integrity and peace of mind and spirit within yourself, and if you don't have a relationship with your Creator and know Him as Redeemer, then you really don't have much life. I don't care how much it says on the bottom line of your personal asset sheet. And I think most of us recognize that at some level, but in the moment, in, in the point of dispute that we have with our rivals, we tend to forget that. Or when we're in the grip of desire and our focus is on some particular material object that I want to attain, we, we tend to forget all of that. And it becomes what life is all about. And Jesus says, back up, hold on a minute and realize that a man's life is much, much more. It doesn't consist in the abundance of stuff that you get. And that's so important because we just tend to, to begin to look at people as things or objects that we can use as a means of acquiring stuff. And so we use people because we love things. When Jesus is actually teaching us that we need to learn to love people and use things appropriately. And so I hope that this lesson tonight can go a long way in helping us to do this. It's, it's really interesting that when Jesus finishes this exchange with this man... He put the icing on the cake by telling a story, and that was Jesus' most common and perhaps most famous way of teaching. He tells the story that you're probably familiar with about a rich man who had a, was a farmer who had a really, really abundant crop one year. So much increase that he really had no place to store all of his wealth, all of the grain that he had produced. And so he thought to himself, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to you know, just tear down all this these smaller uh, bins and, and, and grain silos and barns. And I'm going to build up a, um, uh, something that can house all of my goods. And I'm going to have so much stored up that I'll be able to just take early retirement. And as I retire, I'll just lay back and take my ease and make merry and eat, drink, and, and just enjoy the rest of my life focusing on myself. And God spoke to that person, Jesus says, in the middle of this thought process that they were going through and said, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. And then to whom shall all of these possessions that you have acquired belong to? You see, we often judge everything in terms of time and how much material stuff we can get in the here and now. And Jesus says it's a foolish thing to become so focused on the here and now that we lose sight of eternity, that we lose sight of God, that we lose sight of the world around us and the relationships of, and the people that are all around us. And that's, that's what happened to this man. And Jesus, I think, by doing this is warning this man that he's in danger of that same kind of mistake and running the risk of ruining his relationship with his brother 
in his quest to just lay up goods for himself in the here and now. And so there's a lot that we could say about that, but it's, it's time to move on to Exodus 20 itself, which is the foundation for our lesson. In Exodus 20 and verse 17, Jesus, uh, not Jesus, this is before the time of Jesus, but, but God through Moses said to the people, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Well, they've got a nice house. Does your neighbor have a nice house? Is his house nicer than your house? Do you drive through certain neighborhoods in the town where you live? And think, wow, you know, I'd love to have that. And you probably assume when you go through the wealthiest neighborhoods that this is where all the happiest people in Bowling Green live and don't really know what's going on inside those four walls. And we assume that things like nicer houses become things that we become fixated on and that our happiness would increase if we just had a better place to live in than the one that we currently have. And so we look at our neighbor's house, we want it, we want it for ourselves. And he also tells them, you know, not, don't do that, but then don't covet your neighbor's wife. We covet people. We'll get into that in a moment. If I could only be married to him, if, if I could only be married to her, if I had her, then life would be so much better. Or don't covet his male or female servants or his ox or donkey. And I know that's not particularly a temptation that most of us are facing. I've, I've never seen anybody's donkey that I just really felt a strong desire for myself. But I see somebody's lawnmower. I see somebody's car. I see somebody's stuff. And I begin to think, man, it'd be great if I could just get that for myself. I want it. And uh, we'll come up with all kinds of ways in order to get it. We'll steal it. And he's already told us, don't do that. And, it, and, and we'll come up maybe with ways of, of trying to get government policies enacted so that we can confiscate people's wealth and do it under a legal pretense when in reality, the thing that's at work is our covetousness. And this is something we just have to guard against in so many different ways. Because we don't want to covet, strongly desire, and want to take from another person that which belongs to them. It's our neighbor's stuff. And we talked about, again, in the commandment not to steal, that the Bible uh, speaks to the fact that um, wealth and material possessions are something that people can own. And again, this law undergirds that particular right and wants us to respect the right that that's not mine. She belongs to him. Those things are therefore off limits to me. And I need to shut down this, this mechanism that begins to operate into my mind of how I can get their stuff. And instead learn to look at what I already have with a sense of contentment. Or if there's some legitimate means for me to acquire something that's like what my neighbor has, I can do that and do so lawfully and properly and perhaps help uh, generate the, the economy. But, but when we become fixated on taking what doesn't belong to us, we're headed for serious, serious trouble. And our neighbor, again, these laws have to do with what's necessary for communities to exist together in peace and harmony. And we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And when we begin to covet our neighbor's possessions or people in their lives, we are beginning to go down a path that is the breakdown of the neighborhood, of the community, of the nation of which we are a part. Well, let's talk um, 
about the significance of this commandment and, and where, where it's headed, what it's dealing with. This commandment moves us from the world of outward actions, which is where we've been for the last several weeks. You know, outward actions are stealing people's stuff. You go and you steal your neighbor's lawnmower. Uh, that's a very objective thing that everyone who witnesses it can see what's going on. But uh, when um, it comes to the, to the matter of covetousness, we're moving into a different realm or different world. It's the world of inward desires. It's our inward lusts, the things that we want, that we're craving after. And so this tells us something that I think a lot of people misunderstand. They assume that in the Old Testament, God was only concerned with the externals. But when we come to the New Testament, he's all about what's on the inside. Well, it's true that in the New Testament, God is all about what's on the inside, but he was all about that in the Old Testament as well. There's never been a time that God didn't care what was going on in the human heart. But sometimes, because the law of God, the Old Testament law, was a little bit more rudimentary and was establishing a groundwork, sometimes you just have to begin with the obvious, and then you work toward an emphasis of what's internalized. And here at the end of these Ten Commandments, we see again that God was concerned with that all the way back then. Always has been, always will be. What's going on in your heart? And you know, really all of the other rules and laws that you can come up with won't fix what's broken inwardly. What's broken in the heart. There's a reason why we have to have billions of laws in a country like we are living in today because we, 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 we haven't been able to, to master the inward problem, the inward desires, the covetousness. And because people are constantly inventing new ways to get other people's things, we have to come up with new laws to try to prevent that from happening. The reality is, if we would just abide by the rules that God gives us, we could eliminate the vast majority of other laws, and especially if we would live by this rule. Well, there are things that people covet um, that we want to focus on for a little bit tonight, different areas of covetousness where it works on us in particular ways. The first of these has to do with material possessions. Material possessions is a, an area where um, people give a lot of attention to covetousness. We see physical things that people have and we want those for ourselves. This is the most obvious form of covetousness and what's forbidden when we want the neighbor's house or his possessions, his money. And so we have to avoid that. But there are other ways as well. We, we covet people's position. We want uh, their status. You know, most groups of people will, over a period of time, rather quickly generate a, um, a status hierarchy of, of one form or another. Sometimes it's based on wealth. Sometimes it's based on talent or skill levels or other things. Sometimes they're rather superficial and, and seem to us to be stupid. But nevertheless, things sort of sort themselves out in different ways. And the easiest thing on earth is to look at someone who's a step or two or three up on the, the status um, level uh, higher than we are and to covet that position and then begin to undermine them so that we can attain it. Now, this doesn't mean that all forms of competition are in themselves wrong. I don't think that that's at all the case. But we need to be very careful about 
coveting another person's possessions or position, and especially when it begins to motivate us to behave in ways toward them or around them that are uh, sinful. So we covet people's status and position. Then we covet people's people. This goes back to not wanting their wife or their husband. Refuse to allow yourself to grow discontent with your relationships. Maybe it's your kid. Why can't my kids behave like their kids? <laughs> well, there may be a lot of answers to that question, but don't allow yourself to resent what you have and wish that it was other than it is. Or your husband, or your, you know, if only my husband treated me like he treats his wife, or could provide for our family the way he provides for his family. Or if only my wife uh, was as respectful of me as she is of him, or if she looked uh, like his wife looks. And pretty soon we begin not only to crave other people's people, but sometimes the desire that we have, particularly in sexual relationships for another, is sometimes brought on not merely because of a physical attraction that we have for that person, but simply because it's his wife. And so we can get into some pretty strange places in our thinking and in our hearts that have to do with covetousness as it relates to the people around us. And there's perhaps no place where this can creep in and cause more destruction than in a church itself. People perceive that a person has a gift or an ability, and that's what the book of 1 Corinthians is so much about. People occupied a a ministry or a level of influence within the church that another person desired, or they were a gifted singer or something like that in the congregation and someone else, not so much. And so there was both pride on the person who had the gift and envy on the part of those who didn't. And all of this creates horrible tensions and problems with people trying to live together in peace and in harmony. And so again, the, the, the point is not that we don't strive to be the best we can be or that we don't push for progress or growth or ex expand in, in the ways that are legitimate. The, the point is that we, we, don't, we don't become so enamored with that which we don't have that we can no longer appreciate what we do have. And when we begin then to resent other people for the things that they have, and we begin to try to figure out ways to get their stuff and have it for myself. I think one of the ways that this is well illustrated is in the book of Genesis, as so many things are, in the story of Joseph, which we referred to last week in his relationship with, with Potiphar's wife. But prior to that, in the story, there's this little episode about his colorful coat that his father had given him and his brother's resentment of that. He had something that they didn't. And they became so obsessed with what that coat represented. And it wasn't just that the coat was nice. It's that the coat represented a position that Joseph occupied. And the person that Joseph was and the talents that he possessed. And they wanted that for themselves. And since there was maybe too many of them to, to all have it, they could at least get rid of Joseph. And so their jealousy and their envy drove them to first plot his murder and then settle for selling him as a slave. And so terrible things can begin to happen in our hearts and lives when we covet the things, the status, or the people 
that belong to others. We have to learn to respect what's theirs and appreciate, appreciate what's mine. Well, covetousness is what happens when we believe our natural desire for happiness can be satisfied by something other than God. I really think that we're getting down to the heart of what drives our inordinate lusts and desires with this. Whenever we want, um, you know, we want to be happy, we have this natural or innate desire to find fulfillment, to find satisfaction, to find meaning, and to be what we call today happy. Uh, there's better ways of, of thinking about it than happiness, but that's the word that we commonly use, so we're just going to go with it. We want to be happy. And the problem is that we are fooled into thinking that there's something or someone who can make me happy other than God. That the way for me to really have what will light me up from this point forth and forevermore is if I could just have one of those. If I just had her or him. If I could just occupy this position in my career. Then I'd be just completely saying, what more could I ever want? But you already know this. There's been times you've said that before, and now you have what you said back then would satisfy you completely. And now that you've got it, and the news kind of worn off of it, your eyes been caught by something else or by someone else. And that's the way that it goes. And the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes tell us a lot about the problem of, of never being satisfied when once we've tied our happiness to material objects or to anything within creation. The real issue is finding satisfaction in our relationship with God. And that's why you really never break the 10th commandment without first breaking the first commandment. These are all so interrelated and integrated. It's an amazing thing to study in itself. But when we decide that we're going to have a God other than the God, then we've already begun down the path of breaking this commandment. No other gods besides me or before me, he said in the first one. And that's also why I think that the New Testament tells us that covetousness is idolatry. It is the replacement of the one being in all of existence that can truly satisfy your soul, replacing him with something lesser and then attaching your happiness to that thing. It's a ruinous endeavor. You'll never be satisfied. You were, as a human being, created in God's image and likeness with an appetite and a craving for the ultimacy that only He can bring into your life. And when you set Him aside to pursue other things to find fulfillment, meaning, and happiness in, you've set aside the one thing that can actually do it in pursuit of something that never will. It's a foolish exchange to exchange the glory and the gloriousness of the eternal God for some passing, fleeting material object or some other person who may be great and may bring us a lot of joy in life, but can never be a substitute for God. So God, keeping God first, finding satisfaction in Him is the antidote really to covetousness. But once we've begun to replace him, we've opened ourselves up to these idols and these false um, gods who are 
not going to satisfy us, though we think in our pursuit of them that somehow they will. Covetousness, therefore, cannot be satisfied by acquiring more things. That's what Jesus said. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. But covetousness can be satisfied, or we can learn contentment by learning to be content with who we are and what we have. Who did God make you to be? Because this is huge. This could set somebody free in a big way. Sometimes that covetousness is driven by the fact that we're, we're just not enough and we want what they've got, but we, we want to be more like them or we want what they, their life. And, and that's a fruitless and foolish endeavor. God made you with your limits, your capacities, your abilities, your gifts, and learning to appreciate them, to be satisfied with them is a huge blessing. And once we start doing that, what happens is that often we begin to realize, you know, I, I actually do have this ability. I don't have their ability to do what they do, but I, I've got this and I can begin to work on it and I can grow it and expand it. And it actually becomes something that I can do a lot of good with and I can make gain with. Because I've finally got my mindset switched from wishing I had what everyone else has and wishing I could be what everyone else is to contentment with what I've got and learning to make the most of those gifts. And so we need to learn to have, be, have contentment with who we are and, of course, with what we have. And that includes the people that God's put in your life. Your husband is far from perfect. My wife would be the first to tell you that. But he's your husband. Learn to be content with your husband. Don't think about all the ways that he's not as good as someone else's husband. Think about the things about him that are good, that are a blessing, that do benefit you. And let that be magnified in your thinking. And be grateful to God for who you have in your life. Well, Covetousness cannot be cured by law. I wanted to bring this up before we conclude. Because sometimes in our legalistic way of thinking, we just think, well, okay, God says don't do it. That stops it. But it just doesn't work that way, does it? In fact, the Bible tells us it doesn't work that way. So we might wonder, well, why does God say don't covet? Well, there's reasons for that. And Paul writing to the Romans in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 7, says... I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. All these desires that are working in our heart for our neighbor's house, our neighbor's wife, his employees, uh, his lawnmower, all of those things that, that are where I wouldn't really have realized that these are foolish endeavors and wrong-headed pursuits and sinful in the eyes of God if God's law had not spelled it out and said, don't do that. But the fact is, just knowing that I shouldn't do that doesn't deal with the problem of me still wanting their stuff and wanting what they've got. And Paul says as much. He says, you see, sin, which he describes here as almost this alien thing that's in us, that's working against us, sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, by the law. See, when God said, don't do that, it actually awakened in me sometimes a greater desire to do the very thing he said not to do. And you know how this works. As a parent or as a child, 
The law is given, don't, don't touch that outlet. Don't stick a, a knife or a fork in that outlet. Well, you may never even thought about doing it before, but now that it's forbidden, it becomes the only thing a kid can think about doing now. And when God gave this commandment, it actually produced in me every kind of coveting. Now, he goes on to say, or actually before this says, that doesn't mean that the law is sinful, but that the law is revealing a sinful principle at work in my heart. That perhaps at its root is, is pride and idolatry. But I want us just to simply notice that what Paul tells us here is that you're never going to cure the covetousness that lies deep within you simply by God saying, don't do that. Don't think about her husband. Don't think about his job. Don't think about their car. Just saying that is probably not going to go very far to prevent you from doing it. So what is? The cure for covetousness is a relationship with God. And that's why elsewhere in Romans 7 and then on into chapter 8, he tells us that we need to approach our relationship with God in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the law or of the letter. The law kills, 2 Corinthians, but the spirit gives life. The spirit that comes into our life and declares you are a child of God. And enables us to cry out to him, Abba, Father, dearest Father. Because the Spirit showing us who Jesus is and helping us to appreciate what Jesus has done for us and how Jesus has made a way for us to no longer be alienated from God, but connected with God and to know him as our Father fills us with something that otherwise is just an aching void, an emptiness that is going to crave, that longs for that happiness, that longs for that meaning, that's seeking that fulfillment, but can never quite find what we're looking for. But once we come to truly know God, not as a concept or idea, but as a person, a father who loves me, who cares for me, and who will take care of me both now and forever, who accepts me as I am, who made me like I am, once that relationship begins to truly be experienced, our ability to stop craving after other stuff and other people's positions and status begins to go away. And I no longer see everyone around me as people to compete with and vie for for limited numbers of possessions and positions, but I see them as people to love. And now I can have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Whereas before, all I could do was have lusts, cravings, emptiness, longings that were going unsatisfied no matter what lengths I went to to try to satisfy them. And so it's not just the law. We need the law to tell us, don't do that. But that in and of itself will never be enough. The only thing that's ever going to fix the emptiness in your soul is a real relationship with your God. And so Hebrews 13, 5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and content, be content with what you have because. I love because. Because, because, because God has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you.
That's the promise that God gives to his children. I have all I need. I can be satisfied with what I have. I can be satisfied with who I am. I can be satisfied with who's in my life because I have God there at the center, giving me all I need and with me every step of the way. Let's close our study of the Ten Commandments once again with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the acceptance that we have found with you through your son, Jesus. We pray for anyone watching this series who's been convicted by this law, whichever commandment they feel they have most broken and violated. And we pray that that sense of guilt that should rightly be there as a consequence of breaking your perfect and holy law that's good for us. We pray that you would help them to see that Jesus can provide the forgiveness and the healing that they need in order to restore them to that relationship with you that they, that they need and that they crave. For Jesus alone kept your law perfectly without fault, without breaking even this 10th commandment, never coveting what wasn't his, finding all his satisfaction ultimately in you. And so, well, Father, we commit ourselves to him. We pray for those who need him, that they'll find him. If they can reach out to us, help us to be available in ways to help. Ask, Father, that you help us to share this message of hope and salvation with all that we come in contact with. And we ask it in the strong and loving name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And amen.